So we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 22 today. And you're going to notice when you turn here, there's um, something very, well, I'll say very familiar about what we see in the passage today because oftentimes you'll find that um, there are parallel passages in the scripture to whatever we're working through. For instance, a lot of the events found here are also found in First, first and Second Chronicles. Well, what you're going to notice here about Second Samuel chapter 22 is that we have almost an identical passage word for word in Psalm 18. It's almost as if um, this was written and then they just sort of took this, pulled it out, and put it into the book of Psalms. Um, There's almost no difference between it at all. In fact, this is a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. It focuses on deliverance and refuge. Today there's two psalms. Remember when we started this very last section of this book, um, I said that there's, there's kind of this what's called a chiastic structure, which means there's six parts to it. And sort of the first part and the sixth part are very similar. And then the two inside pieces, if you will, the second part and then the fifth part are also very very similar. And then the two middle pieces are almost are very similar as well. And what we're looking at today is the first of that middle section. It's a psalm. And then next week there'll be another psalm. And so you basically have this interesting chiastic structure. kind of looks like a bow on both sides. And so um, what we find here is a psalm. This week and next week we'll be focusing on that. And again, it's almost identical to Psalm 18. There's a number of words that are repeated or concepts and themes that help us to understand the purpose and, if you will, the theme to this psalm. And it kind of, I've grouped them into three different categories, if you will. David describes his situation using words like darkness, death, destruction, distress, calamity, And then he mentions his enemies at least four times. That sort of forms one group of synonyms that refers to the darkness or the distress that David is facing. And so you're going to find those words repeated throughout the psalm. There's a second group of synonyms that are used in this psalm as well. And they describe God as a place of safety. And David uses words like fortress, refuge, rock, shield, horn. And all of those, again, are sort of synonyms that refer to David or to the Lord's um, safety or the, the place that David can find his rest. And then the last group of synonyms, words like savior, rescuer, um, the one who rewards, righteousness, are all words that describe God as deliverer. So we get this, um, this interesting group of synonyms and words that are used that sort of help us to understand what David's going to drive, uh, drive to, to um, today. I'm going to break the psalm down into four different parts. The first part describes God as a fortress and deliverer, based on some of those synonyms. The second is going to focus on God as the one who rewards obedience. And then the last, or the, the third part of the psalm is describing God as a sustainer for us. So we have God as a fortress and deliverer, God is the one who rewards obedience, and then God is a sustainer. And then the last section is just two verses or three verses, and it's just David's final praise to sort of summarize his psalm. So let's go ahead and look at that. The first part, David praises the Lord for being his fortress and his deliverer. That's going to be in approximately the first 19 verses or so. I'm just going to start by reading the first four verses of Second Samuel chapter 22. David starts off, and I'll start with verse 1 since it's sort of our introduction. And David spoke the words of this psalm, or song, to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now we, we 
just briefly we'll mention here that we don't remember or know exactly where these last pieces, these last few chapters of this book fit in because they're just taken from some point in David's life. Much of the rest of the, the book is all sort of chronological until we get to this last bulk of of chapters. They're just sections taken from different parts of David's life. The only thing we really know about this psalm is it happened after David had defeated Saul and God had taken care of his enemies for him. So we don't know again exactly where that is. We just know that it was at a time where David had finally received some rest from his enemies and that's what's told to us in verse 1. But let's read the first um, few verses of the actual psalm itself. Verse 2, he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I will be saved from my enemies. Look at all those interesting synonyms that you find there. Rock, fortress, deliverer, refuge, horn of salvation, stronghold. Some of them are even repeated multiple times. David begins by describing the Lord as the one in whom he takes refuge. That's the way that he starts his psalm. A few years ago, we had taken the kids down to Disney World and uh, there was this one particular night, we uh, we didn't know we were expecting rain, but I guess in Florida that's just the way it is. And um, I just remember the night, I don't remember what park we were at, I think maybe Hollywood Studios or something. And all of a sudden, in the middle, and just, it just started to downpour. And there's no place to hide. And so I just remember that we found our refuge, if you will, alongside some building and I just remember I was pressing up against the side of that building as as hard as I could because the rain was coming down so hard we didn't have umbrellas I don't even think and um, the rain was just kind of coming down right I mean we were absolutely drenched but I just remember people were running around trying to find shelter refuge because there was really nowhere to go and you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people just lining and so some of these you know like I think I had a person standing up in front of me here another one here and we're all pressing back as far as you can because the overhang was about six or eight inches well that was just it by the time we were done it was literally a, like why bother I think we were just hoping to stay dry because it was also kind of cold and by the time we got back to the hotel everything was drenched I spent about three or four hours downstairs in this area where they had um dryers you know like with my all of our shoes in the dryers and they're just bouncing around you know and um we were just absolutely drenched but that's the idea of seeking refuge trying to find a place where you're out of the elements or sheltered and so david describes the lord that way that he was his place of refuge he was his place of shelter he refers to the lord as my rock my fortress my stronghold you can look at the repetition of those personal personal pronouns do you notice that look at the number of times he says my He said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my redeemer, my God, my rock, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. Kind of gives the impression he must have known the Lord, right? There's no mere cognitive acknowledging here, but something deeply personal to David. You know, I'm... I always find it interesting when we hear our politicians refer to themselves as, well, I'm a person of faith, and I kind of chuckle with that. I'm like, person of faith? Is that the way a Christian talks? Not usually. We talk about my God. We talk about our Lord, because we know him, right? And so when you look at David, what you see here is this personal, deeply intimate relationship with the one who he knows he can find refuge in, find protection in. And so we see it again repeated through the use of this pronoun my 
Notice he looks, or he says in verse 4, that the Lord is the one who saves him from his enemies. We talked about that a little bit last week as we saw these mighty men of David who, smaller than the guys they come up against, we've got descriptions of some of these mighty men of David killing hundreds of these giants and their enemies. But ultimately at the end, and if you remember this at the end, we're told that it was the Lord who delivered the victory. And that's exactly what David sees here as he finds his refuge in the Lord. I want you to look at verses 5 through 7 with me. I'll read those because we find here that the reason David was needing refuge or needing a place to find his rest and his safety was because of the desperation that he was feeling and facing. Look at verses 5 through 7 and the way he describes this. For the waves of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction overwhelm me, the cords of shale surround me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God. Like waves of the sea, he says, death encompassed him, totally surrounded him, enveloped him. Talks about the destruction that actually overwhelmed him. There's an interesting word picture here. Notice he describes these cords of shale. This actually refers to like straps or strings or ropes and the way that he describes this, this is a horrifying picture of shale just sort of reaching out with these cords or these ropes and kind of entangling him and holding him and pulling him down to shale. And you can almost imagine that, you know, he's fighting, trying to get away and shale, hell basically, is grabbing him and pulling him and he just can't separate himself from these cords, these arms, these things that are constantly reaching around and entrapping. What a horrifying picture. But it's a great depiction of hell, isn't it? And so he likens what he faced here in an earthly sense with all of his enemies of basically being entrapped with these arms of shale, hell, trying to pull him down, binding him, taking him captive, preventing his escape. As a result, verse 7, it says that he was in extreme anxiety or sorrow, pain. It says, distress. And all he could do was cry out to the one he knew, which was the Lord. So how do you suppose the Lord would respond to that? We find that in the next few verses here. David actually describes now the Lord's response to all of this. Look at verse 7, the very beginning, or the very end of that verse. After he cries out to the Lord, it says, And from his temple he heard my voice, and... My cry for help came into his ears. Now he's going to actually use two pretty incredible word pictures here or just some imagery to describe how the Lord responds. And one is in some respects rather terrifying. But the other is just totally the opposite. He uses these two word pictures here to do this. The first he presents the Lord as an all-powerful God who burst forth from heaven with terrifying and devastating power. Look at uh, verses 8 through 16. Then the earth shook and quaked. The fountains of heaven were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went out of his nostrils. Fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and he came down with thick darkness under his feet. 
And he rode on a cherub and he flew. And he appeared on the wings of the wind and he made darkness canopies around him. A mass of waters, thick clouds of the sky. Coals, I'm sorry, from the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and he scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then like channels of the sea appeared, then channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were laid bare by the rebuke of the Lord and the blast of the breath of his nostrils. nostrils. Think about that, the word picture he just described there. As you're looking up into the heavens, you see the heavens and the earth are both shaking. It says that he's angry and he's so angry that fire and smoke are coming out of his mouth and his nose. They're billowing out before him. Everything's engulfed around him with these black, thick clouds, this intense light, so much so that everything in front of that is bursting into flames and being just burnt up. It says his voice is echoing, thundering out of the clouds. You've got this intense lightning streaking across the sky. I love the phrase that he used here about these arrows, and it says they're scattered. It's actually the word for confused. That there's these arrows of lightning shooting out that all look like they're just confused. There's no direction to them. It's just total insanity and craziness. He even says that the waters of the ocean, as he bursts forth, are literally blasted to the sides to where you can see the floor of the ocean. That's the way David responding to the Lord coming to rescue him. It's terrifying if you're God's enemies. But then look at how the Lord actually responds to David in this next word picture. And what a contrast it is. Look at verses 17 through 19. And he sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of the many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of calamity, but the Lord was my support. So you've got, all of a sudden, everything just kind of stops. And what you find is that the Lord's hand reaches down from heaven, grabs a hold of David, and lifts him up. What a contrast. There couldn't be a better picture of both God's amazing power, authority, and even his anger, vengeance, and judgment against his enemies and ours. And his compassion and willingness to help us. These are the two sides of God that we sometimes struggle to reconcile. But they're both true. And so David sees that as he is crying out to this all-powerful God to deliver him from his enemies, knowing that the Lord would express anger and judgment towards them, but compassion towards him. Makes me think about myself, you know. Where do we turn in times of distress? Do you expect the Lord to reach out to you like he did David? I think we probably, most of us in this room, do. Sometimes maybe we wait a little bit too long. Try to solve things on our own. I think about this recent political climate we're in and how many within the church strive for political solutions when maybe the first thing we ought to do is beg God for spiritual solutions and to be the one who rescues and delivers. But sometimes even the church doesn't cry out for that until we start to realize that maybe the political solutions don't always take care of it. I think maybe what we saw at the Capitol was a boiling point. People getting tired and angry and upset and 
some of the fringe elements taking things into their own hand, thinking violence is the way to solve their issues. It never works. So David, as he faces his enemies in his distress, turns to the one who can take care of him and help him. And he does just that. And we see this great picture of how the Lord answers him in his compassion and his mercy, while at the same time bringing judgment upon his enemies. So, takes us to our second section, where David praises the Lord for actually rewarding his faithfulness. Now, this is an interesting one, because as Christians, we're often conditioned to believe that we can't earn God's favor. Certainly true when it comes to our eternal salvation, is it not? In fact, we're told there's nothing we can do to earn, to deserve our forgiveness. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the reality for every human soul. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one should boast. So we're conditioned to think there's nothing we can do, right? To earn God's favor. But what about after salvation? Can we earn God's blessing or reward by based on our behavior? Well, based on this psalm today, and we're going to see this, yes, absolutely we can. We cannot earn our salvation, but we can earn God's favor and his blessings for our obedience. Think of this. Leviticus 26 tells us that God promised the enemies, or God promised Israelite blessing in obedience to the law. It says this, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them, and then I'm going to summarize the rest of this, I'll give you rains, I'll multiply your crops, I'll grant you peace, I'll give victories over your enemies, I'll give you abundance... I'll make my dwelling among you, and I'll even walk among you. That was God's promise to the Israelites for their obedience. He promised to reward them by obeying his commandments. Psalm chapter 19, verse 11 says, Moreover, by them, by your commands, your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Proverbs chapter 12, he promised his favor to those who are righteous. says this, A good man, which refers to a righteous man, will obtain favor from the Lord. But he will condemn a man who devises evil. And so there's a precedent in the scriptures that we can earn God's blessing and his favors based on our obedience and our loyalty to him once we have secured that relationship with him, not on our own abilities, but by his grace and his mercy. David certainly believed this and felt this, and that's what we're going to see expressed here in this psalm. Look at verse 22. Actually, starting in verse 20. He also brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me. Now look at this. Because he delighted in me. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not acted wickedly against my God, for all his ordinances were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless toward him. I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the the cleanness before his eyes. Now, we don't know if David wrote this before or after his stuff with Bathsheba and Uriah. I suspect maybe this was before that. Maybe David wouldn't have been quite so bold 
I don't believe he's being arrogant here. I think he's reflecting on the fact that he was a man after God's own heart. He loved the law and he saw the blessings of the Lord. But it doesn't mean that David didn't stumble or fall. He's not declaring that he was perfect here. But rather that he was faithful to the Lord and the Lord rewarded that. Notice he says here that he delighted in me. I love that phrase. But the Lord delights, finds pleasure in, brings a smile to his face, if you will. This is the same language that Queen Sheba used when she was talking to Solomon early in his reign. And that was before Solomon had forsaken the Lord, we're told. She said, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on your throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do righteous and justice. But it says there that the Lord delighted in him. David actually used the same word in regard to the Lord himself when he was fleeing from Absalom. Second Samuel chapter 15, he said, But if he, meaning God, should say thus of me, David, I have no delight in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good. In other words, David used it in an opposite sense to say, Boy, I don't receive the Lord's blessings. I don't deserve the Lord's blessings if he doesn't delight in me. And so David's heart was that the Lord would indeed delight in him. Now you notice in this passage that I just read here in Psalm 20, or in um, 2 Samuel 22, David attributes, or he basically refers to, the Lord rewarding or recompensing him on three different, or in three different instances here. Look at verse 25. He says, "It was according to my righteousness, the cleanliness of my hands." Look at verse 26. He says, "I've kept the ways of the Lord." I've not acted wickedly against the Lord. Verse 26. Verse 23, he says, All his ordinances were before me. I didn't depart from them. In fact, he even goes on in verse 24, and he says, I was blameless toward him. I kept myself from iniquity. David recognized something about himself. He loved the Lord, and he strove to obey him. And he knew that by doing that, the Lord would delight in him. Again, it's not an arrogant statement. The recognition of how God operates. That when we obey his commandments, when we are loyal to him, when we are faithful to him, he will reward us with his blessings. That word recompense is a rather interesting one because it refers to returning something back. If you're recompensed for something, it means somebody's repaid you for something. So in other words, the Lord shows or returns kindness blamelessness and pureness to those who show God the same thing. If you favor God, he favors you. If if you are kind and good and righteous before God, he returns that back to you. If you are loyal and faithful to him, you receive his loyalness and faithfulness as well. But he says to those who are perverted, twisted, haughty, it says that he'll bring them down. So what do we make of this when it comes to our own lives? Does it sound arrogant and righteous to you? Do you feel comfortable? Would you feel comfortable saying the same thing David did? If you stood before the Lord as you are praying, would you feel comfortable saying, Lord, I've I've been righteous. I've, I've obeyed you. I've been loyal to you. I've been faithful to you. Would you feel comfortable expecting the Lord's blessings? Am I making you feel a little uncomfortable? Anybody here want to say, no, I don't feel like that? That's the tension that we we feel, right? Now, there's a fine line, I think, when we do that, and it's just arrogant and proud, and 
We simply do it out of our pride. That's not what we see here. You read through the Psalms, you realize David recognized he was a wretched man. I think about the Apostle Paul in Romans where he basically says, boy, I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. He refers to himself as a wretched man. But yet at the same token, this is the man who wrote to us about the Lord's precious gift of salvation for those who come to him by faith. And Paul was absolutely convinced, in fact, at the end of his life, one of the last things we see Paul write to Timothy was, I finished the course, I've run the race. And he talks about the rewards that he expects from the Lord because of his faithfulness. The same man who complains about the struggle with the sin beast that's within him, saying, I've run appropriately, and I can now expect the Lord's reward in doing that. I don't think any of us would accuse Paul of being arrogant or proud. If anything, extremely humble, but absolutely convinced of the Lord's faithfulness to obedience. And that's what we see described here by David. David recognized he was a sinner, that he wasn't perfect, but he also recognized that the Lord didn't demand perfection. What he demanded was loyalty and faithfulness, a heart committed to him. So, the challenge for us would be to try to reconcile that with our own lives. Understanding that what God wants from us is loyalty and faithfulness, and that if we want his blessings, that's what he demands. And we see that here in David. Which really ought to drive us towards obedience and loyalty, right? Because if we want his blessings, if we want him to rescue and deliver us during difficult times, I think about, again, the times that we're living in right now. You know, we constantly hear Christians call out about how, you know, we want the Lord to bless our nation. We want the Lord to, you know, to just take care of us, right? And then we look at the shape the American church is in sometimes and we think, really? So oftentimes, the very same people that are crying out for the Lord to rescue and deliver us as a nation aren't all that faithful. We look at that, and maybe it sounds like I'm harsh, but the American church is a mess right now, folks. Not every church. I'm talking about the church as a whole. When we think about the things that pass for Christianity today, when we think about what happens in so many of our churches where we become so much like the world Why is it we've got one of the most ignorant generations in history within the church when it comes to the scriptures? People don't know what's even written there. You know, I'm going to point out Jen for a second, just if you don't mind, just, you know, conversations she had apparently with her family last night about eternal security. And one of the comments I made back to her was, this is what happens when people base their beliefs on what they personally feel or think. And I'm not accusing her family. They're simply saying that this is what happens. And yet you can show the scriptures to them and they're like, huh? And they kind of... I'm not sure what to do. That's the church as a whole sometimes. And, and we just have a very ignorant generation of Christians growing up within our churches today because we've just become like the world. And then when we see the world collapsing around us and we cry out to God to rescue and deliver us, it's almost as if we should expect them to go, what? You know the rules? Faithfulness, loyalty, devotion. I recompense that. You know, even Paul in, in the book of Corinthians refers to this group of Christians who, in essence, were dying because of their sin. But yet he says, 
At least their soul saved, meaning in, the, in essence, they're going to be saved through the flames. All they've got is their eternal security. They're just the, the fact that they'll be saved. But there's no reward because they weren't living in obedience and they took their salvation for granted. And in essence, God basically said, I'm done. I'm taking your life. Maybe as a warning to the rest of the church, I don't know. Look at what Paul or what John says to the churches in the book of Revelation, the very beginning, the seven churches there. They're all challenged on one, except for one church, they're all challenged on one primary thing. They weren't loyal. They weren't obedient. And they're all warned that Jesus is going to yank their lampstand out of their church. But the Lord wants... When we cry out to him and we say, Lord, rescue us, deliver us, as he, he wants us to recognize, that's in some respects predicated on loyalty and faithfulness and obedience. Now, does God ever rescue and deliver us when we, when we don't? Only because he's gracious and kind. So I'm, I hope you don't understand what I'm saying. is the only way you'll ever receive God's blessing is if you earn it. That's not what I'm saying. Because God is just, we're told in, in Romans that his kindness, giving us something we don't deserve, is intended to drive us to repentance. And so there's this interesting balance sometimes. But, but what God asks us is, is, look, if you want to continue receiving my blessings, what I want is your loyalty, your faithfulness. And David knew that. And so as he looked at what God had done with his enemies, he says, the Lord did reward me. The Lord, the Lord rewarded me because of my faithfulness, my righteousness, my commitment to Him. And that's a good lesson for us. Let's go on to the third major section. David actually praises the Lord now for sustaining him. So we have this cry to God to deliver. We have this praise for Him doing just that. And then we have now this cry to now sustain me. We find that in verses 31 through 49. It's a big chunk, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. Verse 31 through 49. As for God, His way is blameless. Let me, let me uh, make sure I'm in the right chapter here. Hold on just a brief minute. Uh, 22 verse 31, yep. As for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. For who is God beside the Lord? And who is the rock beside our God? God is my strong fortress. And he sets the blameless in his way. He makes my feet like hinds feet. And he sets me on a high place. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. And your help makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped. I pursue my enemies and destroyed them. And I did not turn back until they were consumed. And I have devoured them and shattered them so that they do not rise. And they fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me. And I have destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I pulverized them as the dust of the earth. I crushed and stamped them with the mire of the streets. You have also delivered me from the contentions of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nation. nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. Foreigners pretend, obedi- or, uh, pretend obedience to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be the rock, or be my rock. 
And exalted be God, the rock of my salvation, the God who executes vengeance from me and brings upon or brings down people under me, who also brings me out of my enemies. You even lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations, and I will praise you for your name. What's this section? The focus on this section is that the Lord actually sustained David then. So David's under duress. He calls out to the Lord. The Lord reaches out and saves him, delivers him, and then now he sustains him. And this picture here is all about basically David's enemies collapsing before him and serving him now, all because of what the Lord has done. He uses these images again of the shield, of a refuge, a rock, a fortress. Verse 36, that it's because of the Lord's name that he was made great, which means this success as a king and as a military man it was all because of the way that the Lord sustained him and stayed with him, and we saw that again last week. In fact, one of the chapters earlier in Second Samuel, it says that the Lord brought David help everywhere he went. He was his great sustainer. It's the reason David was able to defeat his enemies. He actually made David's enemies flee before him. Look at the last chunk there, it's all focused on David being king and how the Lord sustained him as king. He delivered him from the contentions of his own people. If you remember Saul and Absalom and even his own army at one point abandoned him. But the Lord sustained him through all of that. It says the Lord kept him as the head of nations that he conquered. They all pretended obedience, which means they did it because they were afraid of David. It says the Lord was the one who executed judgment. Think about the practical application of this. Where does your strength come from? How are you sustained, especially during difficult times? I think about the time we're in right now. I mean, I I told somebody at work the other day, I had a conversation with a couple of different people, and they're all, it's interesting, they're not, I don't know if any of these people are are believers or not. If there's a husband or a father and a son that are attorneys that rent space from us, so they sit right in our our building with us. And um, Dave and Duke are their names. And um, they're extremely conservative in their views. They might be, I don't even know if they attend church. I know Duke, I think, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Duke, the younger one. Um, he may have some church background. I don't know if his dad does or not. But um, So the other day I was in the office and I was talking to his father, who I don't talk to a lot, but we know each other. And so we started talking some politics and some of what's, what's going on. And... Um, it's interesting because he shared a very similar thought to me. Through most of this stuff we've been through in the last, I'll say specifically four or five years, I've been frustrated seeing how our political leaders have behaved, sometimes on both sides, and because of my political views, more on one side than the other. Um, but I haven't found myself angry until recently. And I've seen the way that things have sort of played out. And I literally was watching the news and I told Amy, I said, for the first time, as far back as I can remember, I'm literally seething and angry on the inside. When I see so many of the things that I thought would ultimately happen at some point happening in front of us, where literally you have the hypocrisy and you have um, somebody saying one thing and ten minutes later saying the direct opposite because it applies only to them. 
and I, and I look at what's happening in Washington, and I see the way that, it, you know, uh, pastors aren't supposed to do this, but the way the conservatives are being attacked and shut down, and I see Amazon be able to just say, I'm oh, sorry, you can't use our services. I know they're private companies. But we're living in a, in a time and an age now where there is so much hatred, and we're now seeing it come out. We know that's what many of them have felt, but they've been too embarrassed or didn't think they could do it, but now it's all coming out. And if we think for a moment that it is not going to get worse, we, we've got a problem. Because what is at the basis of so many conservative ideas and policies and thoughts are the Judeo-Christian worldview. That's what's driven that. And that's what's under attack. Now, we've always known they've hated that. But now, they're feeling emboldened. We can do it now. So if you express that you're a Trump supporter, we'll cancel you. We'll fire you. We'll cancel your bank accounts. We'll not allow you to sell your apps. Okay? But if we think that's where it ends, then listen to Dorsey from Twitter. Just recently, a video comes out. Shows him talking about how that's just the beginning. We're just we're starting with Trump, but more will come. What do you think is behind that? More what? The censoring of conservative ideas, religious ideas. If they're not going to let just conservatives get away with that kind of stuff, are they going to allow Christians? You know, you know it's coming, folks. I'm not a prophet. But you know it's coming. Jesus warned us that it would happen. And so as I'm talking to this, this gentleman at work, he was angry like me too. And he's like, yeah, I'm angry right now. So as we think through that and as we think about that, where do we turn now? Who's going to sustain us if indeed things go the direction where they may very well go? as we lose our voice, as maybe we're accused of hate crimes simply because on a Sunday morning we get together here and the passage may happen to address some issue they're not happy with. Or what happens if you express an opinion at work and your company now thinks, sorry, that's hate speech, you're out of here. Who is going to sustain us at a time like that? David says it's the Lord. That's who has to sustain us. I think about um, one of the most challenging times of my life. Um, it was difficult enough, and I've shared this story, one story about you know Kimberly, um, the cancer scare we had with her. It didn't turn out to be cancer, but that was a difficult time. But probably one of the most challenging times of my life was when Kimberly was born. And I may have shared the story with you before, but you know Amy came down with HELP syndrome, which is the severest form of preeclampsia. Totally unexpected. We, she develops some symptoms, and so we go to the doctor, and, oh, go to the emergency room, just talk to the doc. And I'm thinking, okay, we go to the doctor, and he says, you're having a baby today. And I looked at him, and I said, no, baby's not due for another eight weeks. He's like, no, you're having a baby today. Okay. I wasn't too concerned. I know babies are born premature. It wasn't great, you know, but I'm fairly mature. I can handle this. And so we go, and... They start to induce. Nothing happens. 30 hours of watching my wife turn into a physical person I don't recognize because she's taken on so much water weight. 
She can no longer see because her eyes are swollen shut. Keep asking the doctors, how come she's not getting any better? What's, what, when's the baby going to come? And they're like, well, it'll, it'll happen. It'll happen. I see her, see her start to get a little delusional and she's not making sense. Body's convulsing at times. and Finally, we make the decision to take the baby out. It's my call. I had to beg him to do it because that's not the way it usually works. But I finally got the, sir, or the, or the um, doctor on the phone and I said, this, this baby's coming out now because my wife is, this isn't going to happen. So they rush in and we do that and everybody promises it's all going to be okay. It's not okay. Because they take the baby out who's three and a half pounds or three pounds, 14 ounces or something. Put her in the NICU. I'm going, okay, baby or my wife, baby or my wife, baby or my wife, you know? Amy's not getting any better. In fact, instead of getting better, she's getting worse. And I kept saying, wait a minute, you said take the baby out, that's the problem, or the the solution. She's supposed to get better. She's getting worse. Now she's hallucinating, talking about dying. Scared of my gourd. Her best friend is there, or one of her best friends is there with me in the hospital. Her mom and dad are in there. Spend one night holding her down as she's convulsing in bed, and I'm thinking, this is it. I've got a baby in the NICU that I'm going to have to care for all myself because my wife's not going to make it. I'm petrified. What did I go? I think four days, almost, I think I was working on three or four days without sleep. I remember at one point the nurse came in and she said, you, you've got to sleep. You've, you've got to, they put a little bed on the floor to have me lay down because I, I wasn't making sense myself. I was petrified, and I remember just begging and crying out to the Lord to do something. Just do something, you know? And um, he did, you know? He finally took care of it. Um, In God's infinite wisdom, he finally just told me, let me take care of it. And so I told the doctors, take everything out. Every tube out of my wife. Because this is not going to fix it. If anybody can do it, it's going to have to be the Lord. And the doctor said, no, 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 we can't do that. That's not protocol. I had a nurse come up to me. She said, do it anyway. You keep on. You tell them, this is your call. This is your wife. And so I did. I said, you've got 15, 20 minutes. I'm going down to see my daughter in the NICU. I'm going to pray. But when I get up here, every tube is out of my wife because you're killing my wife and I need God to save my wife so I went down I saw my baby in the NICU I sat and I prayed for about 20 minutes with Kimberly in my arms came back up and then it was nuts I mean that room was going crazy I thought my wife had died and I went running out of my room because they, there were people coming in and out and it was chaotic I got in there and there were four doctors and a couple of nurses they were pulling tubes out of her and stuff you know and I'm thinking what's going on and they just said we're just taking care of it we're just taking care of it so they did and they left an IV in with fluids and that was it and then they left and I sat in the room with my wife and all I did was pray Lord I can't do this the Lord would have to sustain me and I thought going forward if it's just me and my daughter You've got to sustain me. I can't, I can't do this all by myself. And within about, I don't know, a few hours, maybe six hours, I noticed her, I'll call it her pee bag, was filling up. And it was going back up the tube leading back into her body. And I went, that can't be good. 
I ran out to the nurse's station and I said, um, I think my wife's kidneys might be working or something because the pee's going back on the tube. And they went, oh, no, no, that's just like a secondary bag. I said, no, it's going up the tube. And so they came in and went, oh, my gosh, I got excited. It was all good news. And I don't know, I think 12 hours later, she opened her eyes. I share that story just for one reason. I'm confident. I'm fairly bold. And I think Amy will tell you I don't usually worry too much, you know. But, man, I was, I had nothing else. I had nothing else but to say, Lord, you, you, you've, got to, you've got to do this. You've got to sustain me. I, I can't, you know. I remember my pants weren't fitting anymore because after four days of not sleeping and eating, they literally were not staying on my hips anymore. That's what the stress does to you. Total despair, knowing I could do absolutely nothing and that the Lord would have to sustain me and do it. And he did, you know. He did. We got through it. Wife got better. We took the baby home. The day after, Amy got released. But that's the kind of despair. And when you're in that place and the only thing you can do is say, Lord, you have to sustain me. He does. Now, it may have ended differently. It didn't. Praise God. But he sustained me. Sustained my wife, my daughter. And he would have even if it wouldn't have turned out that way. And that's the neat thing about it. And so as you think about that with David, he recognized that. The Lord sustains. Not only rescues, but he sustains which is exactly why he leads to the very last couple of verses here. Verses 50 through 51. Notice he starts it with therefore. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praise to you for your name. He is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed. I love this. He speaks to himself or about himself in the third person. To David and his descendants forever. That's why David wrote this. He tells us at the very end. So this is why I, I've just written this praise. Because I need to give thanks to the Lord. I need to sing praises to his name. Because he's a tower of deliverance. He shows loving kindness, which is faithfulness or loyalty to his anointed and to his descendants. I love this psalm because it kind of reminds us. I think sometimes we kind of forget as Christians, you know. It becomes comfortable to us. It's sort of like a relationship between a husband and a wife, and I'll be the first to admit I'm terrible at this. We have a tendency, you know, you kind of take your marriage for granted, don't you? Meaning you just kind of, you just fit into it, you know, and you no longer try to woo your wife, guys, or, you know, try to... I stink at that. You know, but it does. It doesn't it sort of become comfortable to us, and our relationship with Christ kind of becomes comfortable to us too. And so we go through a difficult, challenging time, and our first response isn't to scream out and cry out to God, is it? We do whatever you know, we typically do, and we see that right now with the political environment, climate we go through. You know, instead of stopping and going, no, man, we should be crying out to the Lord who delivers us. When we have to work through difficult times, oftentimes we do it on our own strength or our own wisdom or our own abilities. And instead of stopping and going, man, I really can't do this. I stink at this. Lord, I need you to give me the strength and the power to walk through this and to stay connected to you. 
we don't often remember that to expect the Lord's favor on our lives, he also expects that we will be faithful and loyal and obedient to him. And that makes sense considering that what he asks us to do are what's good for us. Is that not true? You know, nothing the Lord asks us to do is simply because he's pulling some strings and wants to have fun. I'll make you jump through some hoops. No, it's because everything he expects us to do, everything he desires for us to do, all the commands that he's given to us are to benefit us and to bless us. And so therefore it makes sense that if we obey, if we're loyal to him, if we do what he asks us to do, that he recompenses us with kindness and gentleness and gives us his favor and therefore ends up delighting in us. And I think sometimes maybe we forget that. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I'm going to use a rhetorical question, but how many of you are like me and have a tendency sometimes to get so used to being in my Christian skin that it's almost kind of second nature and I just don't think about it all that often and I just kind of go about my day and hit a wall that's a little frustrating and instead of praying first, I muscle through it and then go, oh, maybe I should pray about that. Almost like it's second nature rather than first nature, right? I struggle with that myself. You know? Um, It would be difficult for me to write a psalm like this. Because I'm not always like that, and I wish I was. I wish I were more like David. Maybe the reason I'm not is because I didn't face the hardship David did. You know? And that's why as I look at what's going on around us right now, as frustrated as I've been, and even now as angry as I was talking to this gentleman from work, I thought I'm going to try to turn this into a witnessing opportunity. I looked at him and I said, you know what? I hate the fact that my first response now is anger to this. And I told him, I said, you know, my worldview tells me that God's the one in control and God's the one that I have to turn to. And so that's what I'm going to have to do. And he kind of stared at me a little funny, which gave me the impression he probably isn't very religious himself, but he listened. But this is where we all ought to be. More like David on this. Especially not knowing what the future holds for us now. We've been fairly comfortable here. I don't know what the future's going to hold. Maybe there'll be a crazy cool revival. Okay? Let's hope and pray. But if not maybe God will use this to reshape the church and to get a hold of our hearts and tell us what's really important and who our deliverer needs to be. And maybe we'll have to wait until Christ returns. We're told to look for him in the clouds. In the meantime, may he sustain us, help us to remember to seek his delight in us through our obedience and our loyalty and our commitment to him. Amen?